listening to another episode of Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth. Hopefully you've had a chance by now to listen to the most recent Grace Matters panel that was posted only to Vimeo. We talked about the implications of the Equality Act, and we had a follow-up podcast with one of our elders. Both of those are password protected on Vimeo. If you have any questions about that, send an email to gracematters at graceccnc.org, and we can answer any questions you might have. The episode that you're listening to today is from the panel that occurred this week. This week, we decided to have a panel discussion about the doctrine of inerrancy. On the panel, you'll hear from a variety of perspectives. And if you have any follow-up questions, please send them to that aforementioned email, and we'll hit them in one of our supplemental podcasts to come. One of them, for sure, will be a conversation with Pastor Brad and Pastor Jeff about the doctrine of inerrancy and the task of preaching the Bible. Here's our panel discussion on the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, just welcome again to Grace Matters, where we are having conversations that establish believers in the truth. And the truth is precisely the topic of discussion this evening. Um, as we look to a, a doctrine of Scripture such as inerrancy, we, it pushes us to Scripture itself and ask ourselves whether or not it is reliable and relevant. And I think those two topics cannot be separated. They go hand in hand. If it's reliable, then it absolutely is relevant, and it's only as relevant as far as we can trust it. Um, so these gentlemen on the panel this evening are going to kind of walk us through various aspects, and you may wonder, well, why is it important enough to, to be talking about it now? Um, in the inerrancy of Scripture played a pivotal role in the establishment of this Grace Community Church, of which we'll hear. Um, it, it was in the midst of what, what has been called the, the battle for the Bible in the 80s and 90s. But it didn't start there. In the 1970s, there was a group of theologians that met together uh, and structured a statement affirming the inerrancy of Scripture. That was not uh, the first word on the matter, nor was it intended to be the, the final word. However, each of them came to the meeting understanding that they wanted the view of Scripture that Jesus had. And if you were to ask what view of Scripture that Jesus had, he said in prayer to his Father, your word is truth, and that not the least stroke of the pen would fail. If you were to ask the apostles, they would say that, as Paul did, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So why the controversy? Uh, about a century ago, uh, theological modernism or liberalism were, was pressing the point and so the, the church stood firm on the inerrancy or without error of Scripture. But it didn't even start there. Centuries before, in the wake of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment ideologies took hold. And out of that came uh, a skepticism, a doubting of everything, including the authorship and trustworthiness of Scripture. That gave way to modernism or theological liberalism. And the liberalism of the 1920s is now the progressivism of the 2021. So these gentlemen, as we look through both the history that inerrancy plays in our church, but also the importance of it, not just for the pastors to know, but for all of us to be aware of and to be confident in the God of the Scripture. 
So tonight we're being joined. Uh, David is filling in as Brad was um, going to moderate. And thankfully, Brad, uh, David is, is ready to jump in with questions and answers. Looking forward to that. Uh, Ted McKinney has, has served not only as one of the founding families of Grace, but as an elder as well. Uh, Bert Wallace is with us as a currently serving elder. And Drew Hansen is um, beginning his studies in seminary. And this is uh, very much in the forefront of his studies, not only to what he will do with his degree later on, but how he ministers to the families and individuals, both within and without the church. So I'm really looking forward to, to what all you have to say so I can be quiet and sit back and listen with the rest of you. So, uh, yeah, as, as Neil mentioned, I was in, intending to just be on the panel and just kind of wait for the pitch. If I could take my hit, now I get to throw up a pitch to myself um, and, and throw some softballs to these gentlemen as well. Um, and so I'll definitely follow up with, with Pastor Brad and probably with Pastor Jeff as well and have like a conversation about preaching and inerrancy. So you can look for that supplemental podcast to come out as well. Uh, but in the short term, uh, let's look at a few of the questions I have. This first one is kind of a, a very short, simple question that will lead into some further ones. But when did each of us first hear the word inerrancy? When did you hear the word for the first time? For me, it was probably, uh, I went to a, a Christian high school, and uh, that church was a, it was a PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, a very reformed kind of a church, and I'm sure that's probably where I first heard that word. I certainly was very grounded in that um, by the time I went to college, in that principle and in that terminology. Okay. And, uh, I guess I would be pretty similar growing up in a Christian home. I uh, was familiar with the topic of inerrancy, at least uh, the assumption that the Bible was true. But I'd add on top of that, I never really put a lot of deep thought into it. It was kind of taken for granted that you know, the Bible was true. And I never questioned it, never looked into it really. So just an assumption I grew up on. My parents were strong. My parents were strong, committed believers. Uh, they were uh, very committed believers, and I went to a, a very solid Bible-believing church, and I heard it as a kid, but then later I went to a, a private Christian school up at Asheville, and, and that was taught um, very uh, readily there. Uh, frequently we heard that, that term, so uh, I came to understand that pretty early. For me, I don't think I heard the word until high school. I went to Wake Christian Academy in the area um, and heard the word at, at least in a senior seminar. Um, and then because I was at Campbell in the late 90s, early 2000s, when uh, these things were of import, particularly among the religious academy, I heard it a lot more. Uh, and I heard it in different ways. And so we'll get into more of that in just a little bit. Uh, but uh, for me, it was uh, late high school, early college age. Um, and so for Grace Community Church, uh, this word is very important. So Ted, as one of our uh, charter members, um, standing in for Jim McLaughlin, who had a kidney stone this week, so we can pray for Jim as well as he recovers. Um, so Ted is, is jumping in pretty late to help with that with this as well, and we're grateful for that. 
Uh, but Ted, what role did this particular doctrine play in Grace Community Church coming to exist? I think it was a very pivotal role. In fact, I know it was, especially for me and for the other families. There were probably 10 or 12 families that it really was the key issue. I was working at Campbell University. This was in the early 90s, if I recall correctly. And I was attending Bowie's Creek First Baptist Church. And uh, we began to hear uh, various mentions of, um, of the um, hired German critics and, and uh, a few of these key phrases that I'd heard that, that often went along with uh, liberalism, theological liberalism, and uh, about uh, doubt about uh, the, the uh, supernatural. I kept hearing little hints or clues here and there. Uh, we, we actually, the, let me just back up a minute. The pastor of the church had uh, resigned and taken a church in Ashboro, and we had an interim pastor, but we really wanted to hire the youth director. Uh, all the kids thoroughly loved him. The adults did. He was a young man who was married, a college graduate, and and very likable sort of guy, and really loved the Lord and preached the word. But um, apparently there were uh, more people than we thought that did not want him to become the pastor there. But we, it came down to a to a church meeting. But before that time, I had the opportunity to talk to that interim pastor who was connected with the. Uh, theology department at Campbell too, but uh, I talked to him for like two hours and and he just repeated about every argument, you know, about, you know, doubting the word of God and the inspiration that I had heard. I mean, all kinds of liberal arguments he brought up and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I thought that People had disproved those and discredited them long ago, but he kept bringing them up, and it was obvious he he relied on these. I said, uh, "Well, do you, do you not believe that the Bible is accurate? That it's totally reliable?" He said, "No, I believe there's there's problems, you know." And then finally, he went on to say that there were errors in the Bible, but that certain parts were inspired. Mm. And um, I said, well, how do you determine what parts are inspired and what aren't? Well, we rely on the German higher critics, the old theologians of the 1800s and early 1900s. And I said, well, those guys didn't even agree among themselves. I mean, how are you going to be sure about what is, what is acceptable and what is not? But it came down to the fact that they did not want to believe in the supernatural and that the Bible was supernaturally inspired and that it had been given to us accurately down through the ages and so we I mean I had a really thorough conversation with him for like two hours but I was quite shocked and I knew then that we didn't want to have anyone that took that stance in fact he stood in the pulpit and and preached um, on Isaiah but he said there was two at least two Isaiahs it's called the Deutero, Deutero Isaiah theory that there were two Isaiahs at least that wrote the book and maybe three, but one preached before the events happened, the other preached after the events happened, and those accounts were combined to make it look like there was supernatural prediction, you know, that these events occurred. And so, you know, I knew then clearly where he stood, and lots of other people in the church did too, but we wanted to have this youth director as our pastor, but apparently there were a lot of other people that were determined not to, so we had a church meeting, and we were outvoted, and we felt that we had no choice but to, to leave, and about 10 of 12 of us families did leave, and it was a very sad time. You know, it broke our hearts. It broke the hearts of everybody in the community, and, you know, I, 
I hated to see it happen, but we stood on the inerrancy of the scripture and we tried to make it plain that that was the issue. It was not a control issue. It was not right. that we wanted our way. Uh, we were standing on the inerrancy of the word of God and that the pastors that we had already talked to and that were, that were leading the church were not taking that position. And so that was basically it. We tried to make it very clear. And there were uh, actually 10 of us were deacons, 10 or 11. And I think they had two deacons left after we, we left. So, you know, it was a very difficult time. It was heartbreaking and, and turbulent. But um, we tried to make it plain. This is the watershed issue is that the Bible is totally reliable, that it is, it is uh, inspired of God and that it's accurate and they weren't willing to accept that position. So, so uh, by way of uh, giving some perspective, that was 26 years ago uh, that Grace Community Church began to meet uh, and was in some ways an unintentional church plant before it was a cool thing to do. Um, but I do want to point out that there have been changes in the last 26 years. Uh, part of the reason that, uh, what, A, if you want to listen to more of the history of Grace Community Church, there's actually a Grace Manners Grace Matters podcast about that. And so you can go back into our podcast history and pick that up either through the website or through Apple Podcasts. But also, um, I was invited to come and to give a lecture for the uh, Christian Studies majors in April. Uh, It was a forum that uh, when I was a student, I would not have conceived this could exist. Uh, But I was invited to come and to give a case for inerrancy. And then uh, there are professors who are charitable to evangelicals and one who might even identify as an evangelical. Uh, the pastor who is at First Baptist Church now is the one that these guys would have hoped for 26 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so Mike loves scripture and loves Jesus and preaches Amen. very clearly from the inspiration and infallible and inerrant word of the Lord. But uh, all that to say, uh, there is hope. Um, but there are a bunch of terms that we've thrown out and, and some that you've added to the screen as well. And so I want to make it clear that the, the doctrine of inerrancy is part of the larger doctrine of Scripture. So the doctrine of Scripture includes a lot of really heavy terms that can be technical, can be a little confusing, but they all function together in some ways like a constellation. Uh, When we look into the sky, we see the stars that make these shapes, and each of these stars, they're held in position because they're exerting gravity on each other, right? And they're kind of held in this space. Some people will give more gravity to one word in the doctrine of Scripture than others, and so the constellation kind of shift a little bit. But if you pull one of the stars out of the constellation, it looks really weird and can get crazy. And that's part of what was experienced 26 years ago at First Baptist, when the inerrancy of Scripture was pulled out of a doctrine of Scripture. The rest of it doesn't hold quite the same. So some of the other terms that are really important are authority. How would we have a doctrine of the authority of Scripture? Inspiration. What does it mean for the scriptures to be inspired by the Holy Spirit? Uh, infallible, uh, incapable of failing, or uh, intended to accomplish something. Uh, sufficient, the sufficiency of scripture. The canon, well, how do we know that the 66 books we have are the books that we're supposed to have? So the canonization process is a whole nother doctrine of scripture that's very important. Uh, Then the term inerrancy that we've used, which I'll give a a slight definition for in just a second. Uh, Even what we do with revelation, how does God reveal himself to us? The doctrine of scripture, it requires an understanding of what it means for God to reveal himself 
or the doctrine of revelation. There's also a sense in which uh, epistemology or the theory of how do we know things, that plays a role in your doctrine of scripture. And lastly, I think that even ontology or a theory of being, what does it mean to be? That plays a role in what we mean with the doctrine of scripture. So we're not going to dive into all those things, but feel free to throw any of those into the Q&A and we can come back to them. Uh, but all those words may pop up at times over the next few minutes. And so we're aware that they're there uh, and we can clarify them if necessary. But just so you know, some of these words are going to pop up. Uh, you have something to say? Uh, yeah, just real quick. I, I, to me, the two of those terms that sort of get can get used interchangeably and it probably in most conversations that would be okay, is infallibility yep. and inerrancy. Uh -huh. um, I was some in studying for this, one interesting way of putting it that I came across was, you know, inerrancy means without error. And a, a human can make an inerrant statement. You know, like I can say two plus two equals four, and that is inerrant. You know, that, that, that statement has no error in it. But infallible means incapable of error. So a, a human is not infallible. I'm capable of error, but I can make statements or do things that don't, that are not, uh, that have no error. So I, I, this is kind of a question for you or anybody sure. uh, just generally, but I'm not sure the, dis I mean, I understand that distinction, but like why would we say inerrancy as opposed to infallibility in terms of, we more typically amongst evangelical types here, scripture is inerrant as yeah. opposed to scripture is infallible. So I don't think they're necessarily opposed to one another, but no. there are some folks in the academy who would use them to make distinctions. Yes, I sort of came uh, on across that too. Yeah, like and some so, people would say this scripture is infallible, but not inerrant. Right. Which, I, Which the definition point, I just gave, that would be impossible. Right. It's like a different definition of the yeah. word infallible, basically. And so anytime you encounter these words, if you're in a conversation with someone who is not a believer, but they know some of these crazy things that Christians believe, uh, and they bring up a concept, it's so important to define it, to take your time in those relationships that you have with folks, and make sure that you're using the same word, so that you're not running into a situation where you say, like, Inego Montoya, this word you keep using, I don't think it means what you think it means. Like, instead, establish your words uh, and establish these terms, even these technical terms that we might talk about. Um, and so, yeah, infallibility and inerrancy uh, in a, I think, a full-orbed constellation of the doctrine of Scripture are going to serve one another uh, in a way that is compatible and connected. Uh, but there are some folks who um, want to further qualify things, and they will make statements about the... Uh, the scripture's uh, infallible in its intent, uh, but that they would see discrepancies as errors. And in that way, would not feel comfortable saying inerrant because of a discrepancy. Right. And so it's the idea of does the Bible contain truth or is truth? And that's an ontological question. That's why I threw right. that funny word in there, right. ontology, because what is the scripture? So you could try to say, well, it, is, it contains truth, its purpose is to teach us true things, mm -hmm. but it does have some errors in it. Right. I mean, some, some would say that. Uh, so one brief definition, and then I'll ask the rest of you guys to kind of pitch in your clarification. Uh, for what, what does inerrancy mean? Uh, one thing, this is coming from Kevin Van Hooser, is that it means that God's authoritative word is wholly true and trustworthy in all that it claims about what was, 
what is, and what will be. So it means that God's authoritative word is holy, true, and trustworthy in all that it claims about what was, what is, and what will be. What other definitions or clarifying thoughts have you had about this particular term, inerrancy? Well, I think when I think of inerrancy, I think of uh, the Bible as God's word. And in, in doing so, it's a reflection of his character. It's God's character on paper. So in essence, it, it has to be inerrant. You know, if we believe in Christ as our God, and these are his words, then to me there's no separating his character that is manifested in the word from who he is. So it has to be inerrant. Bert, said any other descriptions of, if you had to define this term in your elevator pitch for inerrancy, or you're stuck on an airplane beside someone who asks ask a question about this, how would you define uh, inerrancy in a sentence or two? Well, there's an, there's an important, I guess it's a qualifier it, when in a lot of these statements about inerrancy, and that is that the original autographs are inerrant, um, mm -hmm. and which would mean the literal original document, the letters, the physical paper, which none of which exists. Um, it, there's n not one single, as far as we know, anyway, maybe right. it's like in the Indiana Jones could find them, but there, there, you know, we, there's no, there's, we got some really, really old stuff, but nothing that Peter, a piece of paper that Peter actually wrote on or whatever. Right. Well, remember um, like how crazy that would have been in the middle ages. If those had existed, yes. they would have been turned into right. objects of worship. Exactly. I wonder if there were any claim of this as an actual piece of the scriptures. Huh. I, I've, I've never heard of that, but I know there's like pieces of the cross, for example, that oh, people yeah, yeah. would venerate. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so that, cause, because, and this gets a little tricky for, even for me to, to think about, but we could, there certainly have been, for example, editions of the Bible that, for example, have had typographical errors in them. And that may almost seem silly to say, but is that an error? Is, you know, is, does that prove that scripture is not an error? Well, that would be a, what we might call a manuscript error, um, but, it, but in the originals, uh, or there could be a translating error, you know, or, or a better, you know, we may say, well, we now have a, think we have a better understanding of how to translate a certain word um, than translators did a thousand years ago or, so, or something like that. And so you could admit that a translator potentially could make an error or that a printer could make an error, but in the, but in the original, there is no error. Yeah. And I could certainly see how people could go too far with that. And I would say on, on the idea of qualifications, I think if you look at the Chicago statement, which you were referencing, I think they have a list of a certain amount of qualifications. Uh, you know, for example, numbers, uh, like rounding numbers. If you read 2,000 in the Bible, doesn't necessarily mean 2,000 to the person. You know, there's room for that type of... Uh, estimation or, or rounding. So, you know, the experts get really deep into it, but um, a lot of the challenges that people present or want to say that there is error, you know, that's accounted for, like, uh, under that type of uh, list of qualifications. 
Right. And so that I think about things like that. Like if I, I just did a quick little scan here. If I told someone, well, there were 50 people at this event, you know, this tonight, and then a count was made and it turns out that there were 46 people. So was that a, an, was that an, an error, you know, when I, when I just sort of estimated 50? Right. In some, in one sense, yes, I guess, but that right. my intent was not to be mathematically precise in the number. It was just kind of a, a statement about the number of people. Uh, so that actually, the, the intent thing uh, is a key thing for the, the research that I actually did back when I was doing my work. Um, and so there's an interesting clarification that Van Hooser also makes to def further define inerrancy. Maybe let's get your wheels turning as well. Uh, to say the scripture is inerrant is to confess faith that the authors speak truth in all they affirm when they make affirmations and will eventually be seen to have spoken truly when right readers read rightly. So again, Van Hooser has a wonderful way with words. Uh, so to say that scripture is inerrant is to confess faith that the authors speak truth in all they affirm when they make affirmations and will eventually be seen to have spoken truly when right readers read rightly. And so for those who are, and this is similar to, um, again, what Brad said this morning during the sermon out of, out of Psalm 2, um, we, we profess faith seeking understanding. Uh, we believe and then the reasonableness of our faith is even that much more reasonable uh, in light of belief that is a, is a gift. And so <clears throat> when we look at uh, our belief of the scripture, it is a faith statement. Um, there are plenty of reasonable accounts to be made for manuscript evidence of why the scriptures are trustworthy. Um, but that's not, you're not going to reason someone into a profession of faith. We don't want to, we don't want people to make reasonable assumptions about Jesus. We want them to trust Jesus and to make a profession of faith in him alone. Yes. And so Reason gets us to a point, but ultimately the doctrine of inerrancy still hinges on our faith and that God brought the scriptures to us exactly as he intended to do that. And then I love the fact that uh, it is a faith confession that eventually the authors of scripture will be seen to have spoken truly. We can't know uh, exactly what Revelation means in its entirety or what Daniel means in the day of the Lord because it hasn't happened yet exactly. You know, we, the Lord has not returned. <laughs> so we will see eventually, looking back, how everything was completely and utterly trustworthy. But at that point, it's too late to be reasoned into the faith, like you'll already be standing before the Lord. And so now we have the privilege of making that profession of faith and recognizing that ultimately all of these things will be shown to be completely true. But even now, they are. So those are ways to define the term inerrancy. Um, but obviously, it was so pivotal for Grace Community Church to come into existence. Well, how does it impact everyday life? How does it impact uh, what we do in our various ministries or even how we uh, you know, interact with our families and the scriptures? What role does inerrancy play in what we're doing? I'd say one that I think of right off the bat is that it, uh, it gives a, a freedom to us as believers in a sense that if the Bible isn't true, then there's a, a burden on us to find the truth within the Bible mm. instead of accepting the Bible as truth. You know, I can turn to the Bible and not have to question what's in it and like 
it, it doesn't rely on my skill or ability to <coughs> decipher the truth or determine the truth that's in the Bible. When, when I have problems or questions, I turn to the source, source of truth, and it, uh, it kind of keeps things in the right order. You know, God, it ultimately leads to some more of these definitions as well. Like, from inerrancy, that's where the authority of Scripture comes from. You know, it's, it's allowed to be an authority in our life because it's inerrant. I don't have to question whether it's correct or not. Uh, and be, because of that nature of it, it gives me the freedom to turn to it, to come on my knees and to accept it and to try to understand it better, of course, but, but never doubt that what uh, God reveals to me through it is truth. And uh, for someone that can't do that, for someone that has to uh, face challenges and then weed through and pick out, oh, okay, is this truth or is this not truth? Yeah. You know, that's a burden. That, that's stressful. Uh, yeah, it creates an anxiety that, you know, we're free of when we when we claim inerrancy in it. Yeah, so we're grateful for it, the Holy Spirit. We just finished preaching through John, and John reminds us that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And the Spirit leads us into truth through the Word of God. Um, and I like to think, as you were talking, Drew, I thought about, uh, you know, I have some friends who, if they say something, I will completely trust whatever it is they just said, like Scott. So if Scott told me something about something, I would just accept it as truth. I don't have to stress out about proving whether what just Scott just said is right or not. And that's important for our relationship. <laughs> like, if I had to do that, we probably wouldn't be categorized as friends. But because I can trust what Scott is going to tell me about whatever, then uh, that serves our relationship. Uh, it builds, further builds the trust as the thing that he told me, oh yeah, Scott was right. Um, and in the same way, or a similar way, uh, as we trust the scripture, we can trust it because God is speaking to us through it, and he loves us, and it continues to affirm our relationship with him when we trust it, when we trust the word and what it says, the testimony that it bears about something. Uh, we don't have to bear the weight of going back and proving whether God was right about something or not, uh, because then it would be less of a relationship. Uh, but instead, God invites us into a communicative relationship where he invites us to exercise trust in what he says. What ways might inerrancy uh, bear itself out? In teaching, uh, whether that be teaching specifically uh, in, a, in a classroom about the Bible or uh, teaching anything that would, have, that would touch on to Christianity. Uh, what might scripture have to, or the inerrancy have to do with how we evangelize people? Uh, what might inerrancy have to do with the songs that we sing on Sunday morning? Any thoughts that that stirs in you guys? Well, I was going to say in terms of teaching or preaching here at Grace, you know, it tends to be uh, what we say expository. Uh, we, we go through a book, for example, and just work through it rather than a more topical style. Not, I won't say we, that there's never been a topical sermon preached here, but generally speaking, we don't choose a topic and then try to find pieces of Scripture that seem to give some information on that topic, but rather just look at Scripture and say, okay, what is this saying? Um, and so you don't skip over difficult parts, you know, for example. You know, you, you work through that. I, one, one time it, I was tasked with preaching when we were going through Genesis, uh, the story of Judah and Tamar, uh, which is an extremely difficult uh, uh, 
story. Yep. And but and I, I would guess that there's a lot of churches that just would not really deal with Judah and Tamar. You, you know, um, most when I was reading that uh, in the commentaries and stuff, most commentators sort of say. I don't know if most, but a lot of them say basically, well, this story just kind of comes out of nowhere and it really doesn't have much to do with anything. So you can just kind of don't worry about it. You know? <laughs> but a few commentators were like, no, you know, this parallels the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And, you know, it, it comes right after that story or right before it. I forget which. But um, um, and, and so at this church, we would say we don't we can't skip over that. You know, if we're going through Genesis, we can't just say, well, that's tough. So. We'll just let, you know, we'll just worry about it. Or even at the beginning of Genesis, you know, ideas about creation and the age of the earth and the length of the creation period and all that. You know, rather than just sort of glossing over that stuff, we would dig into it and say, what is the Bible saying about this? And whatever, you know, whatever, it's true. So let's look at that as our, as our source, not our own interpretation, but itself, That, that raises a question for me that I, I have for you guys. That um, as I was listening to to Drew explain uh, the relationship of inerrancy to inspiration and the authority of God to make His Word an authority over us, um, wh what's the relationship between our affirmation of God's Word is without error to our understanding of interpretation? Because we can. We can have confidence, whether we're teaching or evangelizing or doing apologetics or whatever we're doing, um, that God's word is true. And uh, as Francis Schaeffer would say, is true truth. It's not just true and it's uh, the accurate details, but because it, it comes from God uh, revealing Christ by the Holy Spirit. It, this is an objective true truth that we can rely on. However, uh, the church, the visible church throughout the centuries, we might say the, the hierarchy of Roman Catholicism or even these uh, denominations and, and sects and particular congregations would differ greatly on various interpretations. Uh, so how do we wrestle with um, an inerrant word on one hand and a very fallible and often errant interpretation on the other. That's one of the main points I made uh, with the students at Campbell when I gave my, my pitch for inerrancy, as it were. Um, I made it clear that inerrancy is not a hermeneutic. So the doctrine of inerrancy is not a way that we interpret. <laughs> it informs the way that we interpret, but it's not the way. So many critics of inerrancy rightly critique the practice of inerrant hermeneutics. The Bible is true in what it claims, but not necessarily in what we claim about it, right? So inerrancy tells you that what is said is true, but it cannot tell you what is said. That's hermeneutics. So the doctrine of inerrancy tells you that what is said is true, but it doesn't tell you what is said. That's a little bit harder work. That's the real work of exegeting and, and marinating in the scripture. Um, so like a, a literalist or science versus faith or even a you know, premillennial, pre-trib, dispensational, that should not be conflated with inerrancy. Like inerrancy does not necessarily lead to a certain set of doctrinal 
stances. It may inform how we get there, but it doesn't necessarily mean if I believe in errancy, I must believe X, Y, Z. Because no such correlation exists between having the right doctrine of Scripture and getting the right doctrine out of Scripture. There's no correlation between having the right doctrine of Scripture and getting the right doctrine out of Scripture. And so um, I wanted to make those points clear to the students as they're dealing with this idea, hopefully wrestling with it still, um, and then thinking about it in terms of the work that they're doing in uh, religious studies. Uh, inerrancy does not uh, require a certain um, set of things to fall out of it, but rather it should inform the way that we approach uh, the work that we do in hermeneutics. I mean, certainly there are people who firmly believe in inerrancy who have different interpretations. I think that's what you were saying, you know, and, and our interpretation is, is very fallible. You know, it is definitely not, or, or it is definitely capable of error. You Unless know, you're our, the Pope. Well, yeah, unless you're the Pope speaking from the chair. That's, I've heard that's been qualified, like that the Pope can, is fallible when he's not speaking in his role as the Pope. Oh. So, so like he just, in his personal life, he might say something that was wrong, but like when he is speaking officially, he is considered to be infallible. That's my understanding anyway. But, but as, from a Protestant perspective, the, um, the interpretation, I mean, I read, there's a really wonderful book. I, I think, gosh, this guy is so interesting. His name is... Um, uh, Lennox, John Lennox, and he, he's a mathematician from a British guy from Cambridge, I think, he's a, a mathematics professor, but he's written these wonderful books that really go well together. One is called Seven Days That Divide the World, which is about, ostensibly about creationism, and, I for, and the other one, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's, it's a, ser a parallel, not, it's not about creation, but it's about uh, scripture, and um, it, one thing that he said in there, in one of those books, it really, really struck me was basically what you've been saying, what the Bible is true, but it's what the Bible says that's true, not what I think about it or how I interpret it or, you know, my, my take on it is not what's true. It yeah. is true. And so, you know, he's saying when he was talking about creation, he was saying, you need to look at what the Bible says and that whatever the Bible says is true. So anyway, that's a whole thing, but yeah. uh, I would highly recommend that author. That's a great, uh, great question, Neil. Um, so before we jump to uh, an open time of Q&A, which we can do at any moment, actually, um, one question that Brad posed that we'll go ahead and ask in his absence that uh, was really provocative to me is... Is it essential to believe inerrancy to have a relationship with Jesus? Is it essential to believe inerrancy to have a relationship with Jesus? I'd be curious if we could all just say yes or no, and then, and <laughs> but no, but then go further. But could you say? I don't know if anyone's willing to do that. I, I would be willing to say yes. It is possible. Or it is necessary? Or it's essential to believe it? No, that, no. I guess in that, I'm sorry. No, it is not essential that yeah. you believe that in order to have a relationship with Jesus. I would have to agree with you, although I don't like to say that. Yeah, right. It can uh, be right, misinterpreted right, right. Yep. so easily, but the thief on the cross didn't have any theo theological training. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he just <laughs> took by faith what Jesus said. Yeah. And, you know, he probably would have 
learn later on about all the intricacies of it, but yeah. he he knew Jesus Christ as his Savior in that instant because yep. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And he just said, remember me, you know, and he yeah, so in that responded moment, in faith. He believed that Jesus was an errant, <laughs> but, That's right. but he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have taken time to clarify that while he's struggling for breath. Exactly. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, to qualify what I said, I would just say those who do not believe that Scripture and inerrant are in grave error, and there are serious consequences for that error, mm -hmm. but we're all in various ways in error. Um, you know, everyone's a heretic in his own way. Um, you know, there, there, I, I have to believe that there are things that I'm wrong about, you know, that I, as far as my, what I think about Scripture or about God or Jesus, um, I mean, it's I'm wrong in good faith. I would say, you know, I'm I'm trying to understand, but I'm sure I've, I'm in error. I, I'm fallible, of course. I'm in error. So I think that's a very serious error, um, with real consequences for how you how you read the Bible and how you pray and and how you evangelize. So it's it's a big problem, but I think possible. So there's some sense in which context plays a role here. Um, so. If you've been through Grace Connection, which I think everybody in here has or is at least familiar with it, uh, we talk about the idea of closed-fisted and open-handed doctrines. Um, so closed-fisted typically refers to um, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, uh, the return of Jesus. Um, divinity. The divinity of Jesus. Like these things that you know, the Apostles' Creed would affirm, th those things are essential to be a Christian. Uh, then our open-handed doctrines tend to be these things that are, are hinged on believing the Scripture but interpreting it a little differently. So we would still believe that someone is, is a Christian even if they didn't affirm a literal seven-day creation. Maybe they had a, a day-age view. Yeah, those people can still believe in a resurrected Jesus, and so they've got the closed-fisted thing. So that's how we tend to find ways to relate those, I, those larger theological issues with the essential theological issues. So in answer to this question as well, Brad would probably say that, uh, you know, the Trinity, maybe you don't need to articulate exactly what Trinity is, but you need to articulate exactly who Jesus is, which is still going to be wrapped up in Trinity and inerrancy and all those things. Uh, but that's a, a closed-fisted thing, you know, what we believe about the Trinity. Um, and so holding those things in tension uh, with regard to inerrancy, um, here, all that to say the context, here at Grace, I would say that a doctrine of inerrancy is a closed-fisted thing in the sense that to be a member here is vitally important yeah, to, to affirm that. Um, but uh, as Michael Bird points out in a book that he write, he contributes to on five views on inerrancy, uh, he's in Australia. He is kind of giving the, the perspective of global Christianity. In other places in the world, they don't have time to, to argue about the inerrancy of Scripture. It's, it's kind of a... It's an issue, and it, it certainly they would deal with it but it's not the kind of thing where they're going to disfellowship someone because they, they don't have the time to argue about inerrancy in certain parts of the world. And so um, this doctrine is very important for Western American uh, Christians and for many reasons. In other places in the world, it's not as important. And so here it would be a close-fisted thing, but it wouldn't necessarily be that for the whole church globally. Um, and I can clarify that if necessary a little further. Um, one of the questions, oh, the computer went to sleep. That's awesome. Uh, one of the questions that we just noticed as we were uh, before, yeah, if it can wake up, um, 
was that everybody has heard, everybody who responded, of eight folks, has heard of a critique against inerrancy. So a lot of us in here have encountered things that were difficult uh, or someone that was questioning what this doctrine is and what it might imply. Uh, one of the other questions we were going to pose is wondering whether or not uh, if you've been in a church that did not affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, I would be curious to know from the folks who are here um, if you came from a place uh, that was wrestling with that or was just straight up disavowing it. Oh, the password. Oh, we'll just leave it then. We don't want to reveal the password. Let's not throw that out. Yeah. They'll get mad at me. He's our IT guy. Uh, and so um, we can go ahead, though, move to the Q&A. If you still had Slido available, you can you could pitch some questions to Neil that he can now uh, share with yeah, us, yeah, yeah. even without the screen. Yeah, thankfully, the technology that was giving us trouble just a few minutes ago is uh, working in our favor right now. Um, some of these appear to be uh, kind of two-part or two submissions, so I hope I, I put them correctly. Um, uh, let's first look at, uh, we mentioned earlier about the qualifications of inerrancy. So how does inerrancy interact with the Bible as literature? Mm. Something that I've thought for a long time is that the, a, there's a word, it's funny, it's contained in that word, I just realized that, but I think a, a straw man word uh, is, I think we're supposed to say straw uh, person now, um, but the, uh, a, the straw man uh, word in, in this whole thing is literal, the literal uh, interpretation of scripture, mm. which I think is a word that our brothers on the left uh, kind of use as a, um, to, to attack that because it, it's, if I, well, I thought about saying, I won't say it that way, but I'll say this. All of us know who believe that scripture isn't inerrant and the hardest hard shell believers in that also understand that there is literary language and yep. metaphor and simile in the Bible. You know, so when Jesus says, I am the door, we understand that as a metaphor. You know, we're, we're, it's, and that's silly. I mean, no one's going right. to say, no one's going to argue about that. But, or when uh, Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest seed, he's not making a for all time empirical qualified statement. Right. Because then that would be an error. You know, but that's, right, not, right. that's not the point. He is using it as an illustration, as a metaphor. Uh, we don't, and we shouldn't read the Psalter, which we're preaching through now, mm -hmm. in the same way that we read John. Um, John is doing a different work in the theological telling of Jesus than the Psalms is doing. With, with each Psalm is going to come from a different part of history of Israel. It's going to have a different context, in some cases a different author. And all those things mm -hmm. impact the way that we would read that Hebrew poetry, which is different yeah. from Greek narrative. Right. Or, or like I was thinking of Job. You know, Job is like a... A play, you know, it's got it's got like characters or dialogue, and you know, and so forth. And it's like, were the exact words of the three friends recorded like exactly as they said them? Were they speaking in in verse? You know, when they talked to their friend Joe? I mean, so so it was a musical. Yeah, yeah, but so so it's so literal. I think is a, is a is a straw man or red herring. I think it's both those things. Yeah. Um, uh, but so we can appreciate the Bible as true and truth um, while still understanding that it is written. Uh, and there, I, I think to me, the word literature is a, a problem, a, 
can be confusing to some people because sure. it makes it sound like it's a novel or something, right. you know, like that it's fiction. Of course, truth can be found in fiction, um, but but we're not going to say, I don't think anyone up here would say there's any, what we would call fiction right. in the Bible, with the possible exception of the parables, um, although I had a pastor one time who believed that all the parables that Jesus told were, were literally true. In other words, he was huh. relating literal things. There was a woman who lost a coin, and he was telling a story about a real woman who really lost a coin. There were sermon illustrations. Right, because he, he felt like Jesus would never say something that wasn't true. Interesting. I would d d tend to disagree with that. Uh, yeah, so again, Kevin Van Hooser, who is a, I'm, I'm a fan of his work, uh, he makes a big point about uh, the importance of understanding literary genre and then thus understanding intent uh, in authorship. Uh, it plays a role in how we interpret, but it all still should rest on uh, our confession of faith that whatever literary genre the author is using is there. It's completely true. It's completely trustworthy. Well, let's piggyback on, on that uh, author's intent and how inerrancy relates to other uh, areas of doctrine about scripture. So how can we determine the author's intent when it's not made explicit? I believe this was probably in reference, David, to uh, what you were uh, yeah. speaking to the students about is that, there's a difference between the doctrine of inerrancy and then the work of hermeneutics. Yep. Can we actually get to the truth that is affirmed in Scripture? Again, in some ways hinge on your pneumatology. There's another nice word. Uh, that's your doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So, again, we just preached through John. We're hearing very simply that the Spirit will lead us in truth. But more fully, what is the Holy Spirit doing inside of each of us who profess that Jesus is Lord? What is the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification and ultimate justification? All those things. Uh, the Spirit does a work in illuminating as we read the text. And I think that that plays a role both individually and devotionally when we spend time with God through the Word, and also in sermon prep and teaching prep. That the Holy Spirit is illuminating the Word uh, when Brad is sitting and, and digging deeply into it. I think the Holy Spirit's probably working through some of these commentators, maybe not all of them, but some of them who are filled with the Spirit and, and love Jesus, and as they're doing work to serve the church, they're also being illumined by the Holy Spirit in their work, and that then serves those who are preparing to preach. And so it's in that work together, participating with the Holy Spirit and with the believers that God has gifted with these interpretive abilities. When we work together, we can get... I think as close as God would have us get to whatever the scripture might intend. Um, and certainly the, uh, this is that again, like we'll know ultimately that everything was truly spoken in whatever manner it was intended to be spoken. There are some things that we may not know yet, even with the gifts that God has given the church of commentators and the Holy spirit. Uh, there are some things that may still be a mystery. And I think that's okay too. But that might be a tangent. Well, and it's it's done over time. I think like we don't have to try to like each individually hash out the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. Like, just can I discover this in Scripture? Because the church over two thousand years, or well, more than two thousand years. Right. You know, the, the the God's word is older than two thousand years. Um, but it's it's been worked out over time, and the Holy Spirit has preserved and protected that. So that's where I think you get into trouble with a. I don't know if it's 
Baptist in its origins, but there's this there's this principle which I've fairly recently learned about called soul competency, uh, which essentially talks about each individual believer is fully and solely competent to interpret Scripture as he sees fit, um, and but that could lead you to sort of ignore, so you could come to some new understanding. This is me talking now, but it seems like that could, the danger in that is that you say, well, I study the scripture and I don't see the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, so I'm, I'm going to go off in this different direction, ignoring the teaching, the work, I would say, of the Holy Spirit over thousands of years through the people of God to, to increase our understanding. That's a question that I'll definitely pitch to Brad and Jeff. We have our podcast uh, to follow up on, like the preaching work, that so the work that goes into preaching, the interpretive stuff. I think that'd be really interesting to know what their take is on how can we know the original intent of God as author, and then of John or Job or Moses or whoever as as author uh, ambassador. I'll just add my two cents and say that um, something called analogia fide or the analogy of faith. Also, the analogy of Scripture, that it's Scripture that interprets Scripture, and no Scripture will contradict any other part of Scripture. So it all works in concert because it's all from one author. Um, so Scripture will allow us to get true to what another area of Scripture is talking about, but that cannot be done apart from, as David was saying, uh, the Holy Spirit working within the reader or interpreter. And that, and that itself hinges on uh, the a faith assertion of yes. inerrancy. Um, yeah, that, that's undergirding that process. But you're right, we have, because of trustworthiness of the whole Scripture, we have the whole council of Scripture. And we can hold the whole council of Scripture together with whatever tensions it might bring uh, to get at the intent that God has for us, for our family, for our church, if we're preaching it. And that's why, it, for me, I cannot be particularly troubled by what you might call, what are called sometimes apparent uh, what I'm trying to say, Discrepan apparent discrepancies, you know, where, and often it's, and they always attack these little tiny details, you know, right. it's like there's nothing major. It's just little tiny things like, oh, you know, when, what day of the week did the Last Supper happen on? You know, John seems to indicate it was right before Passover. The other seemed to indicate it was a different, slightly different day. Okay, well, that's an apparent, what you call an apparent contradiction, but the, Trusting the scripture as inerrant means that you can say, well, I don't understand that. In fact, somewhere in here, I don't know if I can find it real quick, but Augustine talked about that. And he's, he always said there's basically three approaches to that. It's either, if there's some apparent discrepancy, it's either a manuscript error or a translating error or my own error in, in understanding what, what it's talking about. So, as opposed to an error in the text. Right. The error is not in the text. You know, it's somewhere else. Well, stick in line with uh, the manuscripts and then uh, translations. How can we defend the inerrancy of the Bible despite the various translations of the word? We've got KJV now over 400 years old, New Living Translation, NIV, ESV, CSV, NASB, Amplified. I'd say the you know an easy answer for me is that if I can trust that God created the universe and that he could orchestrate or superintend the, uh, the original revelation of the, the scripture, then I can trust that what is passed down to me now would be an accurate copy in, in the intent. You know? And it, again, it just comes to faith, and you know, yeah. sometimes it's a, 
the simple answer, but uh, you know, there's nothing that God can't do. So how, why would he be limited in his ability to protect the content of his word that we have now? Uh, there's also the, if you want to get nerdy with it, there's the Greek and the Hebrew. I mean, there are original languages to be explored, and there's the manuscripts behind each translation. And so, there, again, there are folks that I trust who, if they tell me, hey, this translation's okay, I'm going to take on faith that person with whom I have a relationship that, that that's, that's legit. And if they tell me, hey, this translation's a little troublesome, I will also take that on faith because I don't have the time to do some of the work. And so also it's helpful to know some good resources for these things, which we'll point out a few in just a minute. Um, there's, it's helpful to know where to go uh, to find people you trust to give you an opinion about a particular take or a particular translation if you're looking at the text. Um, and so, yeah, there are definitely arguments to be had about uh, the ESV and the CSB and, and the NASB and who gets which word better King James um, only. Yeah, if, it, you know what you do with the King James and even the New King James, it just softens the these and nows. You know how, who gets it right? Um, I think that as English language continues to shift, there are needs for new work, as it were, and as older manuscripts have been made available over the last several hundred years of, of doing excavation, like there's some changes that need to be reflected on better and older manuscripts and whatever. But um, that yeah. It's helpful to have some people you trust who can tell you what a good translation might be. But also, if you're willing to, and, and, and if your conscience leads you to, do the homework of figuring out where these translators got their ideas from. Which school of thought are they part of? And in some cases, it's more you'll catch more of the theology behind things in the study notes in particular. Uh, so, like for instance, the study notes in the in the CSB have a particular theological bent. The study notes in the ESV have a slightly different theological bent, and those are um, a consequence of those particular scholars who are doing the work in the text. Um, and they try to stay, they try to keep their theology out of the translation process. Um, but humans are fallible, and so those who are participating in that part of Scripture's transmission may let part of their theology seep in to how they translate this word or that word. And so it's helpful to know, um, if, again, someone you can trust to help you guide you in those spaces or to do the work and kind of look into that because it is really interesting for nerds like me. So we've got just a few more, um, but I'm going to put this deeper one in front of you next. Uh, I would put it somewhere between ontology and epistemology. That is, this deeper question is, dealing with what is and how we know what is. So error, quote-unquote error, is a relative term in so much that it indicates deviation from some fixed point or target. What is that fixed point or target with respect to the scriptures? In other words, could it be objectively known to be erroneous? Like donkeys actually can't talk under any circumstances, for instance. So what is that quote-unquote thing that these words accurately represent? So that's, that's depending on a correspondence theory of truth, uh, which is an epistemolog epistemological concern. So you're right, like it sits in between. Um, and it also is kind of getting back to like that intent. Can we know the intent of the author? So if we, we believe that God is a communicative being, he is speaking to us, 
He has spoken everything into being, and now he is communicating to us through the scripture. What is God trying to say? You know, is there is there a, a truth that is behind the words or that is related to the words? Um, all those things are kind of both philosophical and theological concerns. Um, I would say that in short answer to that long question, um, that I don't think there is a like hidden meaning or hidden truth uh, in the text. Um, that would be a more like Gnostic perspective, but there's like some secret message when we put things together in a certain way that will lead us to salvation. I think that God has revealed the mystery to us. That's how you know, the New Testament frames it. And so there's not some secret hidden truth that needs to be aligned a certain way in our interpretive practice, um, but rather uh, God speaks truly and honestly, and that communication will be illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit as we trust the Spirit and spend time with the Word and are willing to do the work of uh, waiting on Him, listening to Him, and using the tools available to us, taking up and reading and, and doing what we need to to, to you know, alleviate doubts or to work on the things that we're curious about um, that might be in, in the text itself. I think, I always think about this uh, thing in the screw tape letters where C.S. Lewis talks about different uses of the word real or reality. Um, and so like when people say, well, what really happened? You know, if, you're, if someone's telling you a story, well, tell me what really happened. You know, but sometimes when we say that, we mean the physical facts. And sometimes we say that we mean kind of the emotional experience. So, so like, he gives these examples of, like, a guy may say he has a, a very moving religious experience, and some, his non-believing friend will say, oh, well, the, all that really happened is that you were in a, a beautiful church with candlelight and right. beautiful music was playing, and you just had kind of an emotional experience. But the reality was the physical all that really happened was you were in these physical circumstances. But then another person, uh, two people looking at someone on a high dive about to dive into the pool, and one of them says to the other, well, you can brag about it, but wait till you get up there and you see what it's really like. And in that sense, he saw the, the reality is the emotional experience as opposed to the physical facts, which we can observe. Well, we know he's up a certain height and whatever. So, you know, we, we mix and match what we mean to suit our purposes, uh, what is real. Um, and so can a donkey really talk, you know, I mean, in that example? I mean, we could say scientifically, a, you know, we can observe a donkey and it's, it doesn't have the vocal apparatus to form words or the lips and, and, and soft palate or whatever it is, you know. Um, but we can believe that that really happened through miraculous means. Um, like what, I'm, what I would not get into, and I don't think anyone up here would get into, is, well, that was just kind of a fictional story that's just illustrating a truth. You know, we would say, no, that, that really happened. What was the mechanism? We don't know. Um, so thinking about what's, what we mean when we say real is important. I mean, ultimately, the most real and true thing the Scripture is doing is testifying to Jesus Christ, who is the, the fullness of God incarnate. He is, he is ultimate reality. And the Scriptures are bearing testimony to that. So if there's anything hidden or, or needs to be corresponded or aligned in the course of doing our work in the scriptures is to recognize how the scripture is pointing to Jesus. That's what he tells the two on the road to Emmaus or on the road. Yeah, while they're walking to Emmaus and he's unpacking it, 
That's what he does in the 50 days before his ascension with the 12. He's telling them, hey, y'all, the whole Bible's pointing to me, and here's how. And so if there's something that needs to be aligned or corresponded, if we need to understand a truth that we can't get at in the Scripture, it's always going to be aligned to point to Jesus. And so he is the, the, the interpretive key to help the Scripture make sense. So when we boil it down, would you say that inerrancy begins with God or with the Bible? I mean, it, it would have to begin with God. I feel like that's a not priority thing. Like, because God is the communicative being, and the way God has revealed himself is to be completely true and trustworthy. So his communicative action will be true and trustworthy. Um, yeah. I, can I throw it? This makes me, I wanted to say this. It seems to fit here in Michael Horton's book about, or, I, think, I think it's called Orthodoxy. What's that little Michael Horton book? Um, core Christianity. It's called, yeah, Core Christianity. And it's just a little thin book, but it's just kind of like these are the essentials. And he makes this really interesting statement I came across in there um, that he, he sort of uh, analogizes the Bible to Jesus who is fully human and fully divine, the incarnation, and he sort of makes that same thing about the word. The word. Now I'm not. I'm still thinking about this, so it's not me saying this right now. But he says that the word is both fully human and fully divine. That the Bible was written by human beings. You know, they they sat down and wrote it, and we believe that they were not just in a trance, an auto writing something that was being dictated to them, but their their own personalities and their. I mean, you can see Paul's prickly personality throughout his letters and you know he'll get real ticked off at people and you know Alexander the coppersmith you know did this and I didn't I'm mad about that and whatever so it's it's fully human at the same time fully divine fully inspired fully breathed out by God and that's a mystery you know that's not something that takes faith to to accept and again I'm I'm still thinking about that but I just found that really really interesting I think that relates to what Drew was saying earlier, that we get this understanding, this teaching about the Bible because of who the author is, that it's, it reflects the character and nature of, of God, and it's from God that we understand that he does not err in what he does. So if this is a, a, a special revelation, direct revelation from him, that, that that cannot err. We read about it in the Bible, but um, there's... There's always, no matter what you talk about, there's always some circularity in the, the rationale. Sure, sure. But there is also a, a line that you can draw from what we see to what we understand, what we believe, back to uh, the character of God. And again, we, we can't get there uh, minus uh, the Spirit's work in us. Uh, one of the things that I encountered this week was uh, kind of this you know, Twitter-sized characterization of Gen Z spirituality. Uh, is don't know, don't care. Uh, this generation that my kids would be a part of, uh, they don't know there's a God or whatever, and they don't really care. Um, and I feel like that is probably a fair, you know, bite-sized take on uh, that generation. And so the doctrine of inerrancy leads us to recognize that we can know and we should care. Uh, God is speaking to us, and he's true, and he's trustworthy. And, and he's given us his word to bear witness to Jesus, who is truth. And so uh, that should, I think, encourage us, maybe give us some, uh, should compel us uh, 
uh, to engage with the next generation in uh, helping them recognize that we should care because we can know. Uh, we don't have to be lazy about uh, what God has said. He has given us his word. He has borne testimony to himself. Uh, and so we can, we can trust that, engage with that. There are a few more questions that have come in, but in order to stay true, or at least hope to uh, stop within our allotted time, maybe we can use those as part of our follow-up conversation with, with Brad and Jeff. Yep. Um, I want to give anybody else up here an opportunity, uh, if you have any uh, final words for us as we hit the streets on a Monday, starting a new week, um, inerrancy. We, we have now been educated and encouraged in the truthfulness of Scripture, how do we leave here and carry that with us? Well, I'll include the, these five resources, uh, links to them, uh, in the podcast notes and make this PDF available as well. Um, but the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was written in 1979, uh, and it is a kind of linchpin in understanding uh this doctrine in the American church. And it, it's not a very long document, but I had never read it until after divinity school. Um, and I am ashamed of that. So I made sure I mentioned it to the undergrads when I got to talk with them last month. Um, even if you don't believe in errancy, you need to engage with this, with this document. Uh, give it a fair shake. And so for those of us who do affirm in errancy, it gives us a really clear articulation of why and how it's structured. It's just set up in bullet points with like a couple paragraphs to, to lead into it. Uh, so it's a great uh, document to read through uh, for even for lay people especially. Uh, then there's a book called Five Views on Biblical Inerrancy that was really helpful for me. Uh, it has a good spectrum. The three evangelicals that are represented are Al Mohler and Kevin Hooser and Michael Bird. And there's a couple crazy guys too. Uh, and then there's the book Inerrancy and Worldview by Vern Poitras. Um, that is a great reflection. It's, it's about 10 years old now, but it's a reflection on the way that uh, the trustworthiness of Scripture uh, interacts with uh, a secular worldview and a Christian worldview. And then G.K. Beale, about 15 years ago, wrote a book uh, called The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism. To kind of give us a picture of how we got to where we're at uh, in some cases uh, with regard to this doctrine. And so my encouragement and takeaway would be just to be reminded that uh, you can trust whatever God says. And he has said a lot of things to us in his word. So take up and read. There was a uh, article that I read preparing for tonight on the Gospel Coalition website, which is a really good resource. I, I think it's tcg.org, I think. TGC. TGC, sorry. This theater communications group is there. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, it's the, the, I'm sure there's probably many articles along these lines, but the one that I was looking at, which is really good, was called Did Fundamentalists Invent Inerrancy? And there, there is, uh, you might hear, if you talk to people about this, that the doctrine of inerrancy was just kind of made up in the late 19th century uh, by what became the fundamentalist movement, which bizarrely based a lot of its principles on two guys out of Princeton, uh, Warfield and uh, is it I think Hodges? Yeah, Hodge. Uh, it's really bizarre to think about that the Princeton Theological Seminary was like the where these fundamentalists drew a lot of their their theology from. They would not do so today. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's not basically short term. It's not true. It's not true that only a hundred hundred twenty years ago did we decide. Oh, this thing about inerrancy. 
Augustine believed it. The reformers believed it. They may not have used the term, but that's what, that's what they preached and what they believed. So it's kind of like the doctrine of the Trinity, which the word was never, it's never used in Scripture, it, and it had to be hammered out, but it was like they believed it, they figured out a way to articulate it. So the, the term inerrancy is just a way of articulating what the church has always believed, that the word of God is truth. I would say, I guess, in closing, that you know, as I look forward, um, you know, the generation to come, and look at my kids, and uh, part of the reason for starting seminary was to really thinking about training my kids going forward, stepping into a really a battlefield that I don't think I'm uh, familiar with. You know, where where it's going to be 20, 30 years from now, but looking at inerrancy has really kind of strengthened the resolve or like the anchor in what truth is because we already know that truth is, you know, getting questioned, uh, flipped on its head, torn apart. But for us, we know it doesn't change. And uh, the more we understand the inerrancy of God and, and the more we can put our faith into it and stand firm on it when everything is washing moving about around us, that's, you know, that's what we got to stand on going forward. And, you know, it's just, a, for me, it's something I, I, I can't sacrifice. I can't uh, begin to question the Bible because once that is, uh, once we question that, you know, we've released that anchor and we're at the whim of what's going on around us. So. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and you know, more questions are arising, uh, even as you guys were, were talking. So before we go, uh, why don't we go again to the Lord, the God of the Word, um, even as we talk about the Word of God. Let's go to the God of the Word and ask His blessing that we, in fact, remember and understand and apply the truths that He's left for us and that we have been discussing here this evening. Our Father, God, we thank you so much that you have left for us an objective and true um, account of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ on the cross and resurrection. In the spirit that you have sent, Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to be illumined by your word, to understand it, uh, to, to live it, and to share it with others. Lord, I pray that those things that were mentioned here tonight uh, were honoring to you and encouraging and edifying for all those who listen. As we go, Lord, give us your strength and insight and wisdom, uh, both to uh, get into the word, but for your word to get into us and transform us so that we may be made like Christ, in whose name we pray. You've been listening to Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth.